Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for Palm Sunday, March 29th, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jack Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this week is entitled, The Best Laid Schemes. Designed every little detail and come to the moment that all of those plans were going to come together filled with excitement and expectation only to have your plans fail, completely miserably fail, or for that matter, maybe just almost work. You know, not quite what you had planned, but since you had planned every detail so carefully, slight failure felt to you just as bad as complete miss. I bet you know what I'm talking about. I cannot tell you how many times I have proven that the best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. As I was reading this week Mark's narrative of this so-called triumphal entry I thought of these famous words of Robert Frost's poem, To a Mouse. I found that poem and read again those opening lines in Burns' native dialect, and they came back to me from some distant past, some English class in my early years. We sleek it, cowering, timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou need not start away, say hasty, with bickering brattle. I wad be lathe to rin and chase thee with murdering prattle. Did you learn that in school like I did? Burns was preparing a field when his plow blade destroyed the well-crafted home of that wee, sleekit, cowering, timorous beastie, known more commonly as a field mouse. The farmer poet paused. And according to his brother, he penned right there on the spot these words that are now standard in anthologies of English poetry. How much they had in common, Burns was thinking, this mouse and he. How both make their plans as best they can, but neither a simple field mouse or a self-conscious human being, the homo sapien, can know what unfortunate turn may lay waste to every good plan. I am wondering if the gospel writer we call Mark could be here today surveying the Christian celebration known around the world as Palm Sunday, if he could see the way we have been taught to see Jesus Would he join in our celebration, or would he retire to some quiet corner to commiserate with the English poet, and maybe to paraphrase his words, the best laid schemes of mice and men and prophets and creative writers and theological commentators go often askew and leave us nothing but the promise of shallow joy because life's great pain and grief are more than we care to handle. 
How would Mark hear how we hear his text? What does this Palm Sunday story mean? What did Jesus' entry in Jerusalem intend? Like so much else in the Bible, I am afraid that we have misunderstood the very basic message. So often in recent years as I have preached and taught, I've been struck by the contrast between what I was taught as a child, what has come to resonate as popular level Christianity, and a deeper, more powerful truth that really is at the heart of this thing we call the gospel. We often uncover these deeper truths in a Tuesday morning Bible study that we call Coffee and Kibitz. I get to talk, they get to kibitz, and we all learn together. A few years ago, we were discussing Jesus' powerful teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Turn the Other Cheek. The late Dr. Glenn Stassen wrote extensively about this teaching from the perspective of the Middle Eastern culture, which was its origin. In a, highly, in a culture of highly structured protocols and taboos corresponding to honor and shame, one could never strike another person with the left hand. In that culture, that hand was considered dirty. That would cast greater shame on the person doing the striking. Neither would you use the backside of your right hand, which conveyed a similar disgrace. So Jesus says, when someone slaps you with the palm of their right hand, it's the only way they could do so without disgracing themselves in public, turn the other cheek. Force them to look at you with respect. Is your opponent going to be willing to disgrace himself as he responds to your action? Jesus turns the tables on injustice, but this teaching has mostly been overlooked by Christians, disregarded in any practical way. You know, that's some kind of ideal Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Or it's been framed as some kind of call to milk toast faith, you know, take your shots now, take your abuse, our reward is coming in the next life. What Jesus' teaching actually represents is a strong offensive initiative, an approach to confront injustice with a transforming initiative. Turn the other cheek and put it at them to stand up. What are they going to do? As we were finishing this fascinating discussion, someone said to me, Russ, I am 80 years old. Why have I never, ever been taught this before? The former evangelical megachurch rock star, Rob Bell, wrote in his best-selling book, Love Wins, that we've got it all wrong about hell, too. For years, we've misunderstood what the Bible is trying to say. Brian McLaren, named in 2005 as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America, has a book entitled A New Kind of Christianity, in which he says most Christians were taught that there's a basic shape to the story of Christianity. It's sin and salvation 
Now McLaren believes in sin and salvation, but he says that basic shape as we came to understand it is just wrong. In his book, Surprised by Hope, the world's leading conservative New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, we have also had it wrong about heaven. For years, we have misunderstood what the Bible is really trying to say about this life by talking to us about the next life. Well, if you have paid any attention to anything I have said or written in the, recent, in, in the last couple of years, you know that I am concerned about the future of the church in America. Our society is changing. Secularism is on the rise. The cultural props that created the facade of a kind of Christian America that we grew up with are mostly gone. As I listen to so many committed scholars of Christian faith say, but we've misunderstood for so long, I think, is it any wonder the Christian church is in trouble? Is it? Maybe it's time we started trying to get it right. But maybe if we actually want the church to survive, we're going to have to work harder than we have in the past. We're going to have to study more. We're going to have to listen more carefully. And maybe we're going to have to eschew the easy answers for the better answers, even if they are harder to hear. On Thursday night of this past week, I joined a panel of religious scholars from Afghanistan. I am sorry that none of you came for this opportunity to learn so much from the current, about the current crisis in our world. The scholars on that stage with me are, were all deeply Muslim. They all looked like the mullahs, the Muslim clerics we've seen in television reports recently. Their clothing, their head coverings, their beards, they were Sunni and Shia. They spoke no English. They represent a different world, a radically different culture that is completely foreign to the one that I know. And they want just the same thing for their children as I want for mine. They want the same thing for this world. And they are afraid of the Taliban and they are resentful of what a few militant extremists are doing to the heart of and the perception of their faith. In the question answer time, someone asked, why has Afghanistan always been in war? And what could you learn from America? I'm glad you heard it the same way I did. I was embarrassed by the question so laden with assumptions and arrogance. I came home and I quickly Googled and found an online post that lists a year-by-year -year history of our great country that reveals in our 239 years of existence, how many years have we been at war? Out of 239 years, the United States of America has been in war 222 years. 93%. And we want to know why they're always fighting in the Middle East? 
Do you hear the arrogance? What can they learn from us? I have always taken exception to the idea of American exceptionalism. We are exceptional, as all people created in the image of God are exceptional. There are exceptional moments in our history, and there are also critiques that should humble even the greatest patriot. The question of American exceptionalism belies a fundamental assumption of privilege and prestige and elitism that reveals a mentality that could only be formed in a nation that has enjoyed unprecedented, almost unlimited power much like Rome in the day of Jesus. And that basic assumption colors the way we have come to see Palm Sunday. It is King Jesus, right? It is Christian triumph, right? Christian exceptionalism, right? This is how the world should recognize him. It is the way the world will recognize him one day, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Again, N.T. Wright says, we've got it wrong. On the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, Wright and other commentators have pointed out that Jesus is deliberately engaging a schemed political satire. If it looks like he had planted that cult, you got it right. All this was planned, they say. On the occasion of Passover, Pontius Pilate always came from his palace on the Mediterranean to give a little bit of security, extra security to the overrun city for that festival holiday. He would enter the holy city from the west. He would ride a powerful stallion. He would enter with all the pomp and circumstance befitting an earthly king. And on the other side of town, Jesus had created a mockery of this Roman arrogance. He rode a colt the anti-stallion. The people lining the street were commoners. They were from the country. They were not the elites from the city. And how do we know that? Because what they waved were not royal palms. They were plants, ekton agron, the Greek says, from the fields. It was straw. That's all they had. In an article entitled, What Palm Sunday Means, N.T. Wright says of these two entrances, Pilate representing power and Jesus representing, well, something completely unlike power, Wright says, which story do we belong to? Which king do we belong to? Which is the reality and which is the parody? After so so long of hearing it shaped by our love of power, a theology of victory, I'm not sure we can actually separate reality from parody. For too many Christians, a Jesus who justifies an American exceptionalism 
that old poor ideology, might makes right, who props up our religious and national arrogances, a Jesus who rides into town foreshadowing the kind of power they've come to believe he actually represents. For too many Christians, this is reality, not parody. But with the Christian church in crisis this Palm Sunday, I think we better listen more carefully, more closely this time. Again, N.T. Wright says, we start out following Jesus because we think we know the story. We know what sort of king we want him to be. You know, the sort of king we've cast him in the light of, our own image. But then things go badly wrong. He doesn't give us what we wanted. As our public institutions are less trusted than ever and our behavior at home and abroad is more confused than ever, the stories which used to make sense in our lives have let us down. Maybe people are looking for a story that does not let them down and more and more they are having to leave the church in search of it. What a sad commentary. I believe my friend Dr. John Ballinger has it right when he asked the church, have we turned the religion founded in Jesus' name into a justification for him being greatest? Celebrate. Into a demand that others acknowledge him as greatest instead of as the obedient servant whom God therefore exalts. You are not great because you are great. You are great precisely because you have chosen not to be, and that is what God honors. Jesus came offering a completely new story, a completely different way of being. It is greatness by serving others. It is justice by turning the other cheek. It is power only by a love that gives itself away. And Mark is trying to tell us all that on Palm Sunday, but you know the best laid schemes of mice and men go often astray. So this day, as we celebrate, even with palms and procession, may we hear anew so that God's great scheming plans for a kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven might actually be realized in us. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.